All right. Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me is... Tim Phillips. Candice LaPage. <laughs> and Peter Salmon. <laughs> I think someone had a mute issue, so we're already off to a great start. <laughs> It's okay, because it's the year-end show, and, um, you know, 50 episodes so far this year have been excellent, and uh, we were due for uh, a flub, so... Well, we're all into the holiday spirit, right? Absolutely. (laughs) I don't know what's what's in your mug, Candice, but uh, sure. Uh, End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk about the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies but this week we are here to do our annual year-end show the top five of the year and what a year it was um some movies i can't speak for everyone but some movies uh saw in theaters some movies were on streaming um so yeah it was uh it's gonna be a real potpourri so to speak anyway so we're gonna do our top five we're going to do in order of our introductions. Uh, so, Tim, you will kick us off. What is your number five movie of the year? All right. Thanks, Adam. My number five movie of the year is Bad Trip, um, which we reviewed back in April. Uh, at the time, yeah, I needed a good laugh, and that movie really delivered it. And uh, ended up watching it two more times after the first time. Um, so it's a hidden camera uh, comedy starring Eric Andre from the aptly named Eric Andre show and his buddy, Lil Rel Howery, who always plays the buddy in movies, um, came to my attention in Get Out playing the buddy. And he's the buddy in this one. And his character's name is Bud. So it fits well. And um, yeah, and I, I just thought it was a really interesting movie in that it was a um, hidden camera movie, but it has a really strong plot to it as well. And a lot of the situations and stunts are really so well choreographed uh, that it feels almost like it's, you know, your standard action comedy movie. But at the same time, they're pranking people um, on a hidden camera uh, as well. So I thought that was really cool. And so the premise is Eric Andre um, is reintroduced to his his high school crush and him and his buddy Bud, they travel from Florida to New York City so he can profess his love for Maria. And along the way, they just prank Americans all over the place, you know, in like a redneck bar uh, on the street. And I think uh, Tiffany Haddish, who plays Bud's sister, she's just amazing in it. Uh, She's she's a criminal and she's on their trail (laughs) and she's like really gangster. And it's and it's really cool. And uh, I just think in my world, I would would give her an award. I think for this role, she deserves she deserves a best supporting actress award for bad trip because she is she's so committed to the role she's hilarious and terrifying at the same time and uh yeah so i think i i thought bad trip was a really cool movie it's like 
sort of like Dumb and Dumber meets Jackass, mm-hmm. but there's more of a sort of good-hearted nature to it as well. Because um, Eric Andre is just like a big kid a lot of the time. He just seems like he's very like naive, open to the world, and I, I thought that was cool. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't stop laughing and had to watch it a couple more times. So it came at the perfect time. You know what? I'm going to second Tiffany Haddish's uh, Oscar nomination for Bad Trip because I she 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 was really on in that movie. But uh, yeah, so Bad Trip, I like it. Anyway, Candace, what's your number five? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't think I have any uh, Oscar nominated best actors or anything in, in my choice, but that's that's all right. It's still pretty good. So um, I uh, and of course, just to throw in a, a quick honorable mention. So uh, I, I did look at all the movies I did and it was hard to not put to all the boys I've loved before on but the reality is is that we uh, only reviewed the third film which is not the best film in the series even though we talked about all of them so instead i'm gonna i'm gonna say my number five is the fear street trilogy so um it was uh yeah i mean the whole thing was really sort of fun uh thank you adam for entertaining me that we managed we we did review all three movies in in the one uh you know super long episode um because uh, it was a real sort of moment uh, in in 2021. I think just the fact that these films were put out kind of caught me by surprise. And um, while there certainly had been some talk about it before, I, I don't think it was really like a, you know, there wasn't a huge buzz about it. And so kind of the entire kind of Netflix horror community were all a little bit caught off guard. And it's like, oh my goodness, so we got these Fear Street films coming out and they also did this weekly release of uh, each of the films. So it was a real interesting way of, of putting it out, having all three films filmed at the same time and really sort of, you know, it was really more like a mini series. Um, and so it was a real, yeah, it was just a real interesting thing all, all around it. But then the films themselves actually really did were also good. Like, <laughs> the sort of distribution wasn't wasn't the most interesting part of the story the films were pretty good too and so uh lee uh, janiak was the the director and um uh writer of all three films though this the second film she had some other writers working with her too and as as mentioned in uh, our episode the second film to me the 1978 camp nightwing portion uh was definitely the strongest of all three of the films but uh, yeah, it was just the whole thing. Like I'd never heard of her. She kind of, you know, came out of nowhere. She was really given an interesting opportunity to do this. Um, thanks Netflix for, you know, supporting interesting, different people, right? Like we certainly, we hear about the Netflix, you know, the Adam Sandlers and stuff like that who get these huge deals, but they still do these sort of smaller things too and support smaller, newer directors and give them a, a pretty huge opportunity to put out three movies in three weeks. <laughs> so, um, and then it was really fun. There was 1994, which just kind of filled our, our Gen X uh, nostalgia cup a fair amount, 1978, which was awesome. And just, you know, fits right in there with the 70s slasher film sort of oeuvre. And then uh, uh, 1666, which was, again, just sort of interesting because they took all of the same actors from the previous two films and recast them and um, sort of finished, finished this story. Uh, and R.L. Stein, 
you know, mm-hmm. everybody loves him. He's having a resurgence. So <laughs> Fear Street Trilogy, all three of them are my number five pick. Okay. Uh, Candace opens up the cheating uh, portion of the year-end countdown. That's cool. Peter, where do you want to take us for your number five? All right. So <laughs> my fifth, and it is one rev- review together, uh, a bit more well-known, a well-known director, uh, The French Dispatch from Wes Anderson. Um, I wasn't expecting much. There is a lot of kind of black and white, which I viewed could be, you know, I that can be great sometimes. It's just Wes Anderson, his color contrast can come off a little pretentious. But uh, I loved it. And there was, you know, some color, which was great. Um, I was also hesitant about it being divided into four or five parts. There wouldn't be enough heart in each one. Um, I didn't know. And it was great. They all intertwine in a very well done way. Um, And it's a good look at journalists. So I know, uh, you know, that's something Adam Donaldson does himself. So that was cool getting a glimpse into that. Uh, Also, just literature and French all around. I recently took one of my fourth years was a about the french revolution so it was good getting a uh, a further look at their you know what revolutions and what they had going on in a similar fashion um it helped me realize you know like, there's a lot of history events there's a cycle right so many similarities um so yeah there was a lot more to dig through than i thought in it and uh some of the parts are weaker than the others but even the worst i would say are are, are quite great um, revisions to a manifesto, Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand's was the weakest, but even it was really great. It was nice to see a glimpse of what they could both be in future Wes Anderson films. Cause they're the, the two newbies, right? Or at least Timothy Chalamet. I don't believe Francis McDormand's been at least a major in any before. Um, but the best one, if anybody is watching on DVD and they just want to catch one of them, you know, the uh, first one. So luckily the first one, the concrete masterpiece is uh, it's phenomenal. Benicio del Toro uh, is, he's just, he's so lovable. He's more lovable. I've seen him in anything. And you know, I love him. I love him so much. Um, so yeah, if you like Benicio del Toro, check out that one. Um, yeah. And just all the parts all around. Great. And the finale is remarkable. Bill Murray, he's not, as in it as much as you might think, but his character's arc and finale is really great. It's just, yeah, it's all around amazing. Check it out. French dispatch. Well, that's Peter. He just took a controversial swipe calling Wes Anderson pretentious. Uh, we'll see how the internet reacts. <laughs> My number five is also a Netflix joint. Um, it felt weird c- to not honor musicals in some way because it's been like an absurdly strong year for musicals. Uh, if you're thinking about uh, In the Heights, uh, West Side Story, which I haven't seen yet, but uh, there's been a lot of good things said. Annette almost made the list, but I'm not sure how much I admire Annette or I'm just haunted by it or rather haunted by the, <laughs> the marionette that plays Annette. Uh so I put Tick, Tick, Boom as my number five. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda directed the Jonathan Larson one-man play turned musical. It is a lot of fun. It has this great improvised energy, although it doesn't necessarily feel improvised. Um, it, it's got a lot of interesting things to say about the creative process. When do you abandon the creative process? How do you, pu- how do you direct your creative energies? Um, how do you turn your real life into uh, dramatic energy and, and all of that stuff. And 
plus it's just a really great musical it's a lot of fun it's catchy and andrew garfield can sing who knew and uh it's nice it's nice that an actor is able to uh carry a tune even though he's he has no background in that we see that a lot in musicals where they hire somebody because they look good um or they're a good actor but that, that doesn't necessarily translate into the musical theater realm so tick tick boom has all the ingredients and it's just a lot of fun um and it's also kind of a bittersweet story celebrating the life of jonathan larson who died before his time unfortunately almost literally because he died the night before his biggest musical that changed broadway forever debuted which was rent he died the night before it went to its first off-broadway performance which is super super sad so tim pick us up from there (laughs) what is what is your number four oh my god it's getting dark um yeah i i just uh, what you and Peter just said. Yeah, those last two, I really like those. Those both just missed my list. French Dispatch, that first episode with Benicio Del Toro in sort of like the insane asylum as the artist. It's, you know, there's so, so many funny bits in that. And Tick, Tick, Boom was really good, too. And I thought it was really uplifting, even though it's kind of <laughs> kind of brought us down there adam it's actually uh, i think a pretty uplifting movie um the one i have for number four is the power of the dog which we just reviewed recently um yeah I, I thought it was really interesting it's jane campion movie i didn't like it the first time i saw it but then it stuck with me i kept thinking about it especially thinking about everything that led to how it ends there's some twists at the end and so I watched it again and I had a much better appreciation for it. And I find w- with stuff like that, like movies, uh, music, if I don't like it at first and then I think about it and I like it, those are usually some of my favorites of all time. So this might be pretty low on my list at number four, but that's kind of where I'm at with it now. Um, and I, I thought the more, I th- the more I thought about it, um, I could really see that Jane Campion was really in control of her craft. She's excellent filmmaker. And I thought of it as a genre movie, but not so much a Western, although it is obviously a Western and more like the subtlest of horror movies, really, because she's really setting it up almost like a, a classic horror movie like that Hitchcock would do. So I, I like that. And, uh, and, and the score is by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead and, uh, you have a Brit in the lead role as the cantankerous American in the West. So there's, um, there's, you know, some similarities with PT Anderson's there will be blood. I think it was definitely inspired by that, but I think probably also by Hitchcock and, and, um, just trying to keep that tension ratcheted up throughout. And the acting is first rate Benedict Cumberbatch, this angry abusive man, Phil Burbank, who's wealthy with his brother played by Jesse Plemons, who I really like. And that's kind of the reason I wanted to watch it too. I really like Jesse Plemons and, and stuff he's been in, you know, Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights. And uh, I'm thinking of ending things. So I wanted to see it because of him. And him and Kirsten Dunst have a really sweet relationship uh, in the movie, um, which makes sense because they're married in real life. So there's some real chemistry there. And Kirsten Dunst is really good too. And I even appreciated her performance more the second time as, as somebody who's, you know, bullied by Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, just sort of like verbally bullied by this guy. Um, 
out of out of jealousy really because she's sort of she's taken his brother away right and he, he's jealous about that but and then lastly cody smith mcphee i thought was excellent as this awkward awkward boy who's sort of seen as queer by everybody around there he wears white tennis shoes when he's in 1925 montana everyone's wearing boots everyone's into cattle ranching and he's truly an outsider and it's really interesting as it goes on the relationship between him and benedict cumberbatch now benedict cumberbatch wants to be his mentor much like bronco henry mentored him and i I think there's a lot a lot there to look at and just sort of like you know male relationships and you know i don't know just sort of like identity and, and stuff like that so a lot to unpack there but i just thought it's really really strong, really strong movie. And she really ratchets, uh, Jane Campion really ratchets up the tension there. And I think it'll, I'll probably like it even more in years to come. I think it's definitely worth repeat viewings. Yeah. I think the power of the dog just missed my list. Cause I, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if it was just cause it was like the last thing we reviewed last week, but, uh, it's a good choice. Um, Perhaps if I there weren't uh, a lot of other movies that I really wanted to put, highlight, uh, it might have made my cut, but that's okay. Candice, what is your number four? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, just quickly, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. I'm glad that you did put it on your list, Adam. I wanted to. I had it on there, and I kept sort of moving it around, and then I worried it was just recency bias that was that was putting it on there, but uh, it is really good, so I'm glad you put it on. And uh, The French Dispatch is like uber Wes Anderson at his most Wes Anderson-iest, and I really enjoyed that. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear it on there. Um, so my next film uh, moved, kept moving down my list further, and I'm sort of disappointed, but I just, I really didn't think I could put it any higher, and that's Candyman. Um, so this summer's, uh, you know, <laughs> God, it felt this was this was a, a movie that did have a lot of hype. And I think I had it on my, um, you know, most anticipated two years in a row because it did not come out when it was meant to. Um, so Nia DaCosta, you know, directed it. Uh, Jordan Peele produced it. Um, they took what I would say is definitely an underrated um, uh, horror sort of bad guy and and um righted some wrongs <laughs> that, that were done in in the original film um which you know the original film still stands up it's really great but there's definitely some issues around around race and why um Candyman is uh targeting the people that he's targeting and so they really really uh fix that a lot in this this current one and i i really enjoyed it like it was a very good film i really liked it and i feel like even in our review we kind of both felt like it was great but there was something missing or they didn't quite you know they did some things a little too like over the head and some things were a little too subtle and it's just like they didn't quite get exactly the the you know perfect about 20 minutes missing actually there's about 20 minutes missing (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I wanted to put it higher, but I just kept, I was like, I, I just, I can't, but it was, it was really good. Uh, it looked, it looked amazing. I mean, cinematography alone in this film, 
means it has to be on the top five for me because it just looked so good. And uh, um, thank you, Nita Costa, for introducing me to uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who is a very, very handsome man who ended incredibly not handsome. Um, th- they did some they did some pretty serious work on making him monstrous by the end of the film. And uh, uh, it was, it was great. Really, you know, I just, I liked it and I wanted to like it more, but I still think that it's, uh, it's one of the best of the year. You want to see monstrous wait till my number four, but we have to hear from Peter first, Peter, what is your number four? My number four. And I, I forget if we reviewed it or not, or if it was reviewed uh, and it, very surprising pig uh by uh michael samoski it uh or sarnoski sorry um i i had never seen any of his works he hasn't directed anything else but uh i was very very surprised it was phenomenal it was outstanding um i'm not even a huge nicholas cage guy i uh admittedly like 10 year old me i think kind of didn't hate knowing even though it's horrendous but uh, overall, you know, I'm not, he's not too present in my life and raising Arizona is, it's okay. It's a, a hit and a miss. Um, especially if you know about his, you know, his, his failures on set. Anyways, he's remarkable in pig. Um, there's not much dialogue, but when he does say words, it's very heartwarming, very emotional and you care about him. So, you know, it's, I don't just love it as a Nicolas Cage film because there's no talking. There's some and every line he says is phenomenal. Um, I also, since I was a young age, I don't know why, but the truffle hunting is so fascinating. I, I, I was, I remember being so surprised and still am that pigs have this capability. So even just getting some information about the truffling world, you know, it's, it's fun for that as well. Um, but what surprised me the most, and I think I, one of the, the reasons I'm including it is Alex Wolf from the Naked Brothers Band was outstanding i almost teared up at the one part there's a relationship with him and his mom and he just he does it so well i uh i did why i wasn't a huge fan but i watched it sometimes and it's always great seeing someone who was in such a different place you know being where he is like uh you know who we mentioned jordan peele right going from you know i think matt yeah matt tv and then comedy as a whole and now he's doing horror films and amazing films uh all around um yeah, and I think another stand-up for me is not so much the cinematography, although it's very lowland, well done for the pig, very good pig point of view, but uh, just the scenery, his cabin and the location, I think probably filmed in Canada. There was there was big trees everywhere, probably Vancouver, and it was it was very beautiful. I was okay with the 10 minutes, you know, 12 minutes, just no dialogue, just him walking around with the pig looking for for the truffles, right? And a metaphor for him, you know, looking for, you know, a way to block his past and, and what happened. And you get brief glimpses of that, which is is really great, um, but not a very uh, forceful, here's him in the past, here's him in the present, just a, a perfect little sprinkle of what went on with him. Um, also just in Portland, great, fun setting. Yeah, so if you're interested in truffles, the uh, pig truffles, not the candies. Sorry, if anybody thinks it's the candies and going in, it's not. I'm sorry. But uh, that, or if you just want a really great, minimal, but dramatic, some good, you know, good sprinkle of action in there, I would, I would very highly recommend uh, Pig. I have just one thing to say to that, Peter, and that's, uh, you stole my pig. Because I, I have 
I have something to add to, about Pig later. Uh, for right now, my number four is uh, Titanic, which is the, a French film from Julia de Cournot, who did Raw a couple of years ago, which is probably the grossest zombie movie you will ever see. Um, Titanic is not much better. Uh, to put it simply, it is about a serial killing uh, serial killer, this woman who by days like this she basically dances on cars which i guess is a thing um so like the, the film opens with this whole like sort of fast and the furious kind of like hey we're at a we're celebrating cars and look at all these hot women dancing on cars and then it goes into this serial killer drama and then it goes into uh the main character has sex with a car and the car gets her pregnant. And that's like the first 20 minutes. And uh, it is quite the journey. Um, there's a lot of stuff about gender identity and about family and about parenthood and the inherent body horrors of pregnancy. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on. The makeup effects are grueling. Um, there's a scene where uh, the main character, Amelia, beats herself up. She's trying to break her nose. And after hitting herself in the face like five times, brutally, she smashes her face on a sink. And I've watched a lot of horror movies in my life. And I was having troubles watching all of this body horror go down. And. So, so it's incredibly graphic in a violent way, but it's also like just blatant and honest and messed up and horrid. It is, there is no movie like it. And I encourage everyone to watch it. <laughs> and that's my two cents on uh, Titani. Um, and I'm looking forward to see what, uh, what, uh, what uh, Julia Ducourneau does next. Cause it's going to be terrible. And I mean that in the best possible way. Anyway, Tim, follow that up. What is your number three? <laughs> it sounds like a fascinating movie there. Um, definitely want to check it out. And to Peter for Pig, I, I think the pig was a real star of that movie too. I just love seeing that pig. I don't know. I could watch like a two-hour documentary about that pig. But yeah, that was a good one. Um, and yeah, to follow up on what you said, Adam, I've got a, a strange French movie myself. And it's one you mentioned earlier. My number three is Annette by Leo's Carex. And it makes me think there was another movie he did before called Holy Motors that got rave reviews a few years ago. And I watched it and I, I just hated it. But it was so out there. It's kind of like what you're saying there. In, you're saying in this Titanic, they're having sex with cars. In, that, in Holy Motors, the cars are talking to each other in a parking lot. They're beeping and their lights are going and they're communicating, which is fascinating, but it was a little bit too oddball for me. But uh, Annette, I really connected with this one. And it's uh, by Leos Carex. And it was written by him and the Mal brothers, better known as the musical duo Sparks who I was not aware of until this year. Right? They're a 70s, 80s band that um, have quite a cult following in the UK. Uh, and I'm a bit of a music nerd. I'm into all that stuff, and I'd never even heard of them. And um, I guess this year also Edgar Wright did a documentary about the Sparks Brothers. 
so they came up with this really strange concept in that, which is an opera. And uh, it stars uh, Adam Driver. And he plays this, um, this comedian, Henry McHenry, who's just like this, uh, like an Andy Kaufman type. He, he's not in it for the laughs. He's just in it to rile, rile stuff up. But somehow he's like mega famous and rich off, off of this. He's like the top comedian in the world, even though nobody laughs and everybody hates him. And so that's his lead character. And then he co-stars with Marion Cotillard, who uh, plays an opera singer. Um, and so it's interesting what, with their relationship. And with, also there's moments, there's a lot of moments in the movie where they break down the fourth wall. So going back to Sparks or the Mail Brothers, at the opening of the movie, it really, really got me into it because I thought, oh, this is so funny. They're like, they have a, a song, So May We Start, where they're just talking about starting the movie. They're just singing about starting the movie. They're walking down the streets of Los Angeles. So may we start, so may we start. Uh, and it's really funny. And then the movie starts going and then you hear Adam Driver start singing and Marion Cotillard and they're not Adam Driver, at least. I don't think if I recall correctly, was much of a singer in the movie, but that kind of adds to it because it's just, you know, that authentic voice. Um, and, and a character I really liked was Simon Helberg, um, who plays Howard Wallowitz on the big bang theory. And I thought this was just an excellent role by him um, as this pianist who's in love with Marianne Cotillard's character, Anne, and he'll do anything for her. And he, he has a song and it's so like breaks down the fourth wall. It's so funny. He's like, I'm the accompanist. He just keeps singing. I'm the accompanist. I love Anne. I'm the accompanist. Then he moves up in the world and he's conducting orchestras. And in the middle of conducting this big orchestra, he keeps turning to the camera to profess his love for Anne. And then he's like, hold on a second. I have to conduct the orchestra some more. So it's just, just wild how it breaks down the fourth wall. And also the uh, marionette puppet is quite something as well. So Anne gives birth to a puppet. And then that becomes a big part of the movie as well. And uh, you have uh, Simon Helberg's character and um, looking after the puppet. Um, and it's just a wild movie. And I, I definitely recommend it. It's hard to explain, but I would definitely <laughs> um, definitely watch it because uh, it's just it's all over the map. But it just you think about it afterwards, that's for sure. And it's got great use of music. And uh, yeah, it's just, and, and it's sort of like an outsider's perspective too, because it's like about the USA, but it's from this French director. So it's, you can see this outside perspective instead of the Super Bowl, I forget what he calls it, but he's just like, comes up with this other name for the Super Bowl. And like, everything is just like from a outsider European perspective. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's definitely one one to see. I think it's on Prime, so check it out if you got a chance. Yep. It is it's too weird for this world, but that's okay. <laughs> Candace, what is your number 3? Um, yeah, so my number 3 film actually really snuck up on me when I was sort of looking through the the list of, of films I had watched this year. Um, and I think even at the time I I don't think I rated it as high as what 
you would think a film that's in my top five and so high on it would would show up. But uh, it's Malcolm and Marie, um, which is basically uh, uh, like a, a play. It's two, uh, you know, just it's Zendaya and uh, John David Washington having the best and then worst night of their lives. Basically, you're watching a relationship uh, implode and or possibly just, I don't know, uh, come back together. Who really knows? But essentially, it's a, just this like night-long fight between these two actors, these two characters. And um, I think because it was not... Um, so it was difficult to watch. It was kind of like kind of harrowing to watch because it's awful. Like it's really awful to to watch these two fight and to hear the things they say to each other and just like it's it's really it's not sort of a fun time to watch it. But the performances are incredible. It is actually the first time I'd really seen Zendaya in anything. I mean, I did see her uh, in Spider Man, but she was like she was just. MJ so it didn't really <laughs> you know but this she really like I really got to see what she could do and I was super impressed with her with her performance um uh John David Washington uh and I think you Adam were one of these people many people thought his performance was uh over the top uh which I agree but I also think that this particular character the person that he is playing would still be performing during his own fight. So, uh, you know, yes, yes, it was over the top, but I think that that's actually the character that, that, that really did actually play into it. Once again, I'll say the cinematography in this film alone makes it to the top five. It's, it's so great. It's black and white. It's this beautiful, like on, uh, it's an old, uh, one of the right, uh, houses. And so it's filmed there at night incredible use of light and dark and like the starkness around it. Cause it's on sort of a nature preserve. It's just really incredible. The performances are amazing. Um, yeah. I just, I, I really, I think in retrospect, the film is much better than I enjoyed it when I watched it. And it's because it's just so hard to watch. <laughs> like it's, it's really, it's not a fun time. It's definitely not a fun time. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it is a beautiful movie to look at, but you know, I, the thing I still can't get over is like Sean David Washington's like 12 minute monologue. I know it wasn't really 12 minutes, but you know, where he's like yelling at the moon about critics and how he hates critics and how you know critics have their heads up there. I mean, it just, it was the ultimate sort of uh, artist moment to, to lash out against critics, which not unfair, but uh Anyway, yeah. it, it, it was something, that's for sure. Peter, what is your number three? So my number three, and I, I hope it's okay, because it was at Sundance released in January. It's wide release, not until 2021. Uh, as my third, I picked uh, Minari. I uh, wasn't really expecting much, and I, I feel bad. I was, again, I was busy with school and such. I wasn't aware of it really until the Academy Awards. And just the clips they showed of the uh, winner of supporting actress was, you know, that pulled me in. Um, I also, I had no idea what it was, but in university, a lot of my focus is on the, you know, countercultural incidents in New York, including between Korean 
and you know the black community um do the right thing people would know you know that sort of event so it was really cool seeing korean immigrants moving to arkansas a more small rural community and what it's like um another thing i thought was very interesting is they were a christian which is you know very common you know there's a lot of people assume you know buddhism or confucianism or, or something like that so it's nice to see you know the what is you know i think on average actually higher in america um you know christian korean uh immigrants uh you know citizens and it was very nice seeing there was nobody at the church who really blatantly was racist they tried their best but there was still some racism sprinkled out, right? Which is, I think, you know, there's a thing you can try to not be racist, still be racist. And it shows how, you know, even in a world where it might not look just from the outside, extremely hard and dividing for the Korean immigrants, it, it, it really can be. So I thought was that was great. And like I said, especially the grandmother, she was phenomenal, outstanding, um, especially after she has a stroke. There's some really... Yeah, very, very interesting. I don't want to spoil the ending, but some very interesting things going on. Um, and it's also, I just really like, you know, I like social history. So it's more of a just kind of minimal look at their life in Arkansas and their new, you know, move there. I also, um, like I mentioned with Pig, there's just some interesting facts about uh, American jobs and occupations that I, you know, I had no idea about. Um, the, uh, the, it isn't, like opening the eggs or whatever, it's checking to make sure the little chick is a guy or a girl. And it looks like the most tedious job and something hard, but I guess, you know, something that's necessary. Yeah. So it's just a, it's a really good film focusing on social matters of America in the eighties for Korean immigrants, very specific, but very, very well done. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had a chance to check out Minari yet, but uh, it's still on the list <laughs> to, to revisit at some point. My number three is The Green Knight, David Lowry's uh, kind of rock and roll version of the, the old uh, Arthurian adjacent story um, of Sir Gawain. I always thought it was Gawain. I guess it depends on your local dialect. But uh, it is kind of this fascinating sort of deconstruction of Arthurian legends. Uh, Gawain is not so much driven by, you know, honorary knightly things like nobility and uh loyalty he's kind of become a celebrity after his first duel with the knight and so part of the journey is to head north to face the green knight again uh there are moments of like fear of cowardice of indecision um it's really and, and death patel is is so great and un unconventional choice given obviously his heritage so there's another whole layer to this um, concerning the nobility and, uh, you know, also testing sort of because obviously we're living at a time where there's white nationalism on the rise. And a lot of these people look backwards to medieval times as sort of an ideal time and to have uh, someone with brown skin as one of the heroes from medieval England really uh, puts puts a. <laughs> makes you think about uh, a lot of these ideas in a, in a different way. And also the mu movie itself is beautiful. Like a lot of the creatures he encounters, the green Knight himself, um, like the makeup is impressive, but the sound effects are also impressive because 
basically the green knight sounds like an old tree as he moves so it there's, like, there's the rustling you hear the rustling of the leaves you hear the the branches the the branch the branches bait uh not break but like like when you hear an old tree uh, in winter sort of blow in the wind, that's kind of the sound effect as the green knight moves. It, it is such a, it is such a great creation of sound and, and visuals. And the, the actor himself, Ralph uh, Innocent is so great. He has such a great voice um, when he gets to talk as the green knight as well. So it is uh, a really fascinating tank on an old tale Um not what you're expecting going in. It, it is kind of like kind of rock and roll. It's not masterpiece theater. And uh, it's also a lot of fun too. It's just, just a beautiful movie to watch. So we'll have to take a break there. And uh, after that, we will come back with our top two. You're listening to end credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. One, two, three, four. So may we start So may we start It's time to start My time to start They hope that it goes the way it's Okay, and we're back. We have we each have two movies left. So there's technically 10 movies left. So I mean, like think of the value you're getting in this episode anyway. Uh, Tim, to come back around to you, we now eagerly anticipate the naming of your number two film of the year. Thanks, Adam. Um, my number two movie is Come On, Come On, which is a 2021 black and white drama film, or to put it another way, box office poison. <laughs> but I think it'll it'll get some buzz, I think, around award season, and it'll deserve it. And I think it'll get a larger audience, which, which I think the movie deserves. Um, it's written and directed by a prominent indie filmmaker, Mike Mills, not to be confused with the former bass player of R.E.M., which I thought, wow, he's making movies? But no, it's... Uh, it's a, uh, somebody who just focuses on making films and it stars Joaquin Phoenix and he plays Johnny, who's a radio journalist. And he's traveling around the United States interviewing children um, to get their perspective on the future and how their lives are going. And so we first meet him. He's traveled to Detroit and him and his team of producers are down there interviewing children. And he gets a phone call from his sister who he hasn't spoken to in over a year. And she says she's having her estranged husband's having some issues. He has mental health issues and she has to go visit him. She's calling from Los Angeles. She has to go visit the husband in Oakland. And would uh, Johnny, the Joaquin Phoenix character, mind looking after her son, his nephew? Um, so then sets up the story that uh, Johnny will take care of the nephew and, but he still has to do these radio interviews. So he does travel around with his nephew, ends up bringing him back to New York with him, where he lives, and he's doing interviews as well. And it's 
really interesting because the character of Johnny doesn't have any children of his own. Um, so he, he's, he starts to learn and, but he interviews children. So he definitely has an interest, but he starts to learn from his nephew and uh, the performance, probably one of the best performances I've ever seen by a child actor. Um, I'll get his name right here. Wally Norman, Woody Norman, sorry, Woody Norman, um, who's plays an American child, but he's British in real life as so happens often the best American actors are British. It seems like recently, um, but he's just, he's excellent in that role. And it, there's a real authenticity to the movie and real sincerity to it. And, you know, often movies, you know, try to be earnest and they're like, you know, they're really going for it. They're really trying to, you know, be the tear jerkers. This one, I think it just naturally happens. And something that's cool I found out later is that the interviews with the children, those weren't actors, the children that Joaquin Phoenix interviews. He actually just improvised interviewing children and got real answers about what they think about the future challenges, their lives. And yeah, and it's excellent in the film because the whole movie is really about listening, like tr truly listening. And so he's listening to his nephew, you know, who's I think like 10 years old. So, you know, you might think 10 year old, what does he really have to say about the world? But he's truly like listening to him, finding out what his perspective is. And the nephew listens to uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny character. And it really draws you in. And there's some great locales too. They go to New Orleans at one point to interview children. Um, and then there's in Los Angeles where his sister's located, uh, Johnny's sister's located. And uh, yeah, I think it'll really draw people in really naturalistic, um, and really authentic. I, I, I think, which is, which is cool. Cause often these are like script writers churning it out. How are we going to, how are we going to make people feel emotions? And when you hear the plot to this, you might think, okay, it's that cliche, you know, you've seen this before, you know, the uncle or whatever it might be the aunt looking after the child, but I, I think they do it in a really unique way uh, that, that um, yeah, that really, really captures the essence of, it's almost like a, a docudrama in a way. And it's really cool. So I definitely recommend, come on, come on. Cool. So Candace top that with your number two. Uh, uh, sure, sure. We'll, we'll top that. I don't know. Um, so my next two are actually really basically tied for first. They're just such wildly differing films that it, it's, it's kind of, it depends on the mood you want to be in. So, um, I'm gonna go with the fun one first. So if you're in the mood for just like a, a fun time and let something wash over you in the Heights, Lynn Manuel Miranda's, uh, uh, you know, Broadway play brought to brought to the screen by uh, John Chu uh, was great. It was just it was it was so much fun. There were some incredible set pieces for some of the songs, um, you know, really great because it was a lot of like bring it all out and actually get to see the people dancing as opposed to sometimes in in more musical type things you see you know, little bits and pieces, but we got to see all sorts of people dancing, great songs. Um, 
the cliche, of course, that like the neighborhood or the city is is a character, but of course it is called In the Heights. It is really about finding your place and that sort of thing. So of course, big love letter to uh, Washington Heights, uh, which just really made me want to want to go visit New York City again, which at the rate we're going may not happen, you know, for who knows how long <laughs> this whole travel thing. Um, and of course, uh, just bonus points for Jimmy Smits, who whose name was not brought up when I reviewed this in the summer. Jimmy Smits was in this, super fun. It was great. And of course, uh, Abuela Claudia just had this incredible, moving song. Um, despite the fact that I said this is like a fun time and you want to watch some, like you want to let something wash over you, uh, I did. Uh, start crying about halfway through the film and basically continued crying for the rest of it because it was just so moving. And uh, part of the reason as well that I didn't put Tick, Tick, Boom on my list is because I would lose all credibility as a critic if I had two Lin-Manuel Miranda movies in one top five list and just become like a fangirl. So um, In the Heights was great. And you know what? This is This is the one film this year that I wish I had seen in the theater mm. as opposed to having rented it and watch it at home. However, having rented it meant I got to watch it three times before my rental was up. So that's a bonus, but I really do wish I had seen it on the big screen. Cause it was just, it was really, it was just, it looked, it looked great. Like I said, the set pieces were really incredible. So, um, and the songs, I still just, you know, put them on every once in a while. All right. I'm looking forward to see what the sad one is at number one, but Peter, we still have to get to your number two. Yes. So my number two is, and I I try to do a documentary each year. I think it was Jasper mall last year. Um, My favorite, or sorry, we're on second. My second favorite, no offense doc. My second favorite is Kurt Vonnegut unstuck in time. Um, The second it hits the screens and bookshelf. Uh, it, it, we need to review it. It was, it was the best documentary I've seen in a while. And I guess it, 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 the most recent one I've seen that uh, has been in the work for more than, you know, five years or even a decade is the up series. Right. So this one 40 years in the making, and it really, it's such a long time. that something I enjoyed, which makes it more of a, a film essay or whatever from the director. Uh, included in its plot is the making of the film and how much of a relationship the director Robert B. Wide and Kurt Vonnegut made um, and how as a fan, he just represented what Kurt Vonnegut brought to all of his fans, which was great, but it is still, it's long and it is a full doc of his life. It's interesting to see him being rich. And then because of the world war one going completely broke, what he dealt with there and I actually, um, I went with my wife who, you know, has a master's in literature and everything. She absolutely loves Kurt Vonnegut. I myself have not read any Kurt Vonnegut. I, I was not really aware of him. I, I knew he was a writer, but I, I kind of just assumed he was a jerk, you know, like a, like a, a druggie or, or, or druggies about like an individual that did drugs or something. You know, I, I didn't know anything about him. But he's, he's a pretty nice guy. And there's a lot of really great interviews with his uh, his kids, too, all of his kids. And they just tell really you know distinct stories, including some ones where he's not perfect. But he was just a good guy overall, great writer. Um, I also assumed that all of his works 
were like for the intellectual, but I didn't know that one of his specialties was it being everybody's able to read them. You know, they are, they can be very you know, scholarly, very you know, a higher level, but um, easy to read for everybody. And uh, illustrations throughout, which I thought was, was marvelous. Very, very cool. Um, and you get a, a really good look at all of that. Um, and yeah, it's just a really wonderful documentary uh, essay style in the sense the director has a huge role uh, in his relationship with Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and yeah, uh, tons of direct interviews with Kurt Vonnegut. He was buds with the director. Uh, and I think it's the only Kurt Vonnegut one that he, yeah, sorry, I don't think it is the only Kurt Vonnegut documentary he's agreed to and really loved. So yeah, if you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan or just of history at all of literature, documentaries, films, go see Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time. It is phenomenal. It was a good year for docs and uh, I wish I could have made room for a doc on my list, but I didn't. So there you go. Um, for my number two, I have Pig, the uh, the aforementioned Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, it is so weird because you th- you go into this if you if you go into this not knowing anything about it you think this is going to be John Wick with a pig and Nicolas Cage because it's about somebody who is like living a solitary life their prized animal is stolen so they have to go back to their old life and have to be- uh, get favors from old friends and they have to you know go back into their old life and they have this reputation so it's like John Wick except with a truffle hunting pig but. Uh, even though it has this sort of like, I don't know, this kind of like melancholy kind of like undercurrent of like negativity about it. Um, it's it, it, it like the climax of the film isn't like a gunfight or a knife fight. It's like this. They're preparing this beautiful meal to appeal to this man's like better nature. And it ends with this like painful, dramatic catharsis. Uh, for all the parties involved and it is not what you're expecting but it's so lovely to watch and it's uh, uh, a little grueling to watch as well and it ends on such like a bittersweet note as well you want like you kind of want the pig chapter two to sort of sort of see what happens next although i'm not sure we'll ever get pig chapter two which is a shame Anyway, that brings us to the number one pick of the year. Everybody's number one pick of the year. So, Tim, hit us with your number one. Thanks, Adam. My number one pick of the year is The Beatles Get Back, which I thought was amazing. Um, I know it's sort of listed as a series on Disney Plus because three episodes, but I think if you do what I did, you might be kind of insane, but what I did, I watched them all in a row. So it's close to eight hours. And I know online, somebody said, because it's by Peter Jackson, it's his Lord of the Ringos, which I thought was a clever way of putting it. Um, but yeah, Peter Jackson, obviously from Lord of the Rings, based out of New Zealand, took all this old footage from the Let It Be movie um, from back, that was released in 1970, but from recording sessions in 1969 with the Beatles. And it's just such, it's a term, I'm gonna use a term here that I don't actually don't like much anymore because a lot of people use it, but it is an immersive experience being um, uh, being there. It feels like you're, you're in the studio with them. Uh, you almost feel like maybe if you're not in the band, you're like one of their uh, assistants off to the side. 
and you're there for all these multiple takes of songs. Um, and at, at first it's a bit jarring because they'll start a song, take one, take two, take three, but it's just the repetition of it just gets you even more involved in it. And you're almost, you know, sort of like cheering them on to, to come up with an album. And, and it, it's interesting because it, in the original documentary, it's by this director, um, Michael Lindsay Hogg, and he's in the movie. So it's a documentary about a documentary because he's in there trying to come up with a concept because the Beatles, they don't want to really just record an album. They want to do like a big show at the end of it. They want to put on a, a big show. And this guy, he comes across so pretentious right in, in 2021 Maybe at the time it was fine, but he's like, you guys need to go to Libya. There's some ruins in Libya. We'll get 2000 people there and you'll do a big concert. And they're like, well, how are they going to get, how are the fans going to get there? And then everyone's, then they're saying, well, we'll bring them on a ship. The Beatles, 2000 fans on a ship, three days, get over to Libya and we'll put on this big concert. And, and it's funny because the Beatles, you see different reactions because Paul McCartney at this point, sort of like the boss of the Beatles. So he want he, he kind of wants something big to happen, but he, even he's not really into it. And you've got this director trying to point them in a way that they're not comfortable with. And there's really two distinct segments. There's a segment in this film studio, uh, Twickenham, I think it's called, where they kind of want to shoot it like a film with this director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, but it's not really conducive to recording. And so you can see they're just getting on each other's nerves George Harrison leaves at a certain point that, and he just deadpanly just says, I'm out of the band. <laughs> I'm done with the band now and leaves. And, and then, and then, um, but you can, then they go to the Apple studios and then you see, okay, now everything's starting to flow. Now they're having a fun time. And I think in the original documentary, a lot of it was, I haven't seen it, but apparently it's a lot about, you know, them all looking mopey and not wanting to be there. He really took those takes, but this gives a fuller picture of just how they collaborated to create such great music in the late sixties. And it's, it's interesting to watch from anybody who's like creative or even from like business, like office relationships, just how they interact with each other. Um, like George Harrison has the song something at one point, right? Classic Beatles song. He starts playing it, and then they, they 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 play around with it for a bit. John Lennon's like, "Oh, that sounds all right." Plays around, but then he's like, oh, "Whatever," because there's that competition that still. So George Harrison can't get his his music through. They're not really listening to him, um, you know. And John Lennon's checked out, and he's hilarious in this. He's making jokes all the time, but he just you can tell he just doesn't want to be there half the time. And then Paul McCartney is just trying to like be the boss because their manager died um, a couple of years prior. So he's like, we don't have a daddy anymore. So it's interesting from that perspective to just look at like sort of a creative project or even like a work project where there is no boss. You know, you think, okay, utilitarian, that would be great. But it's kind of interesting seeing them and how they just keep, you know, keep falling apart. But because they don't have any guidance, but still they have such great talent that they're able to create this great music. And then the payoff is the rooftop concert. So they stop talking about Libya 
They're finally saying we're not, you'll find, I think Paul McCartney at once says, says, you know, Michael, you'll find we're not going abroad <laughs> and he just shuts them down. And so they play on the rooftop and, uh, anybody who's a Beatles fan maybe has seen some of those old clips, but it's interesting. Cause you see, they did multiple takes and it's funny how there's like these supporting characters in their, their oeuvre who are there to stop the police from coming up to the roof, right? Just coming up with all kinds of excuses saying, oh, we'll shut the PA off. Then you won't hear it on the street. And yeah, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's cool because it's a documentary, but all the people in it, they, they're playing like supporting, really cool supporting roles. Um, and then of course you've got the Beatles as well. So I'd recommend it. It definitely was uh uplifting experience um it is interesting it is produced by paul mccartney ringo Starr, and the widows of george harrison and john lennon so there are some disputes in it but that might have you know it might have been colored over a little bit um but i'd rather have that than two hours of mopey beatles i'd rather have them making music and having fun which i i think it's really really great i'd say a movie they call it a series but a great movie to watch for sure that's my number one technically a series i'm just kidding <laughs> anyway candace what's your number one um well first of all i'm going to uh stand up for tim's pick of three three two hour long things as as one number one pick seeing as how i started by choosing three like hour and a half two hour long things is my number five so I made a mental note of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my, uh, my, my second number one pick, because <laughs> apparently I, I just break all the rules, uh, is, is a bummer folks. It's a bummer. It's a hard movie to watch. Uh, it does not end the way you want it to, but it, uh, is great and it is an important movie to watch and that's promising young woman. Um, so Emerald Fennell, uh, written and directed, uh, what, was sort of um, sold as like a rape revenge film. That's what it looked like you were walking into. Um, and te technically there is revenge for a rape that happens in the film, but it does not play out at all the way you think it is. This is not an exploitation film. This is a, a pretty heavy um, sort of character study of a person who has been, really deeply traumatized by somebody else's rape in fact it's it's not even it's not even her trauma that she's carrying it's the trauma of, of someone else um carrie mulligan is just so good in this um she's you know she has these these moments of of lightness and happiness in the film at the same time that she's just so deeply hurt and it's really incredible to see to see that she's able to to do both of those things um and uh, Bo Burnham who I had no idea who he was I watched this film I still didn't really know who he was and apparently he exploded this summer with some sort of creative thing that everybody on earth thinks is the best thing ever I haven't watched it whatever um but he's in this so if you're into that Bo Burnham special that came out on Netflix watch him be the ultimate good guy who is in a rape revenge film. So maybe, maybe he's not the good guy. Hard to say. Um, 
yeah, it was just, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a great film and so bright too. I'll say so bright and colorful, which again is so odd for such, for a film that's so deeply about trauma and grief. Um, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's a hard one to watch, but I do think it's something that everybody should watch. And I also think that it's important that people understand that, um, the trauma that uh, Carrie Mulligan's character is going through uh, is a common trauma for women, but uh, women are uh, unique and varied. And so the experiences are unique and varied. And there was a lot, people had a lot to say about how she dealt with, with the things she dealt with um, and whether that was good or bad or reflected people's personal experiences. And I think it's important to know that, uh, women are 50% of the population. We we don't have one experience. <laughs> we don't have one way of being. And so it's important to see other ways that other people are are going through things. Um, yeah. Yeah. This film was really, really good. And it was a big bummer. Yes. It's those two things often go together. Uh, Peter, your number one is so I I don't know, but I might get some hate from this. Uh, my absolute favorite this year is Dune. I uh, I thought Dune was spectacular. I also want to note um, because I mentioned him in the French Dispatch too. Uh, twenty twenty, me and all years prior, I hated Timothy Chalamet. I don't know why, but I just really did not like him. I guess he got a lot of praise for Call Me by Your Name, and that had already been done in italy like back in the the 70s right like Polini with pedro Polini, Polini, uh the Polini. 120 days of sodom director yeah it uh it was it was already existent you know but uh anyways uh he is phenomenal and outstanding in dune i'm glad i saw it before french dispatch and overall it's the most stunning visuals in a film i've seen in years you know maybe i can't say decades but you know well may, hey maybe when i was like eight um yeah way better than any of the star wars i've seen recently it's just oh yeah i, I just it's just this dunes i don't even like the desert i'm not gonna live in the desert area right like i'm not you know it, egypt would be cool it's not like high on my tourist list but the <laughs> the worms in the dunes were it was phenomenal it was scary it was such a great monster one more imaginative than i well i guess it was in the book but one more grand than I'd seen in any of the recent Star Wars. You know, it, it reminded me a lot of how I felt as a young and watching the uh, the really weird sand one and the you know Jabba the Hutt's planet. Yeah, I'm not a Star Wars guy. I don't know whichever whichever one that was, but uh, yeah, Dune and the casting, other than Timothy Chalamet, Oscar Isaac. Um, I didn't even realize till the end it was Javier Bardem, but he's pretty major in all of it. It's it's the most major in a bit, at least that I've seen. Um, and a lot of people were saying they were mad because Zendaya isn't in it an exceptional amount, but the scene she is a part of, um, she's, she's the main one, you know, and, and there's a very uh, strong glimpse at her throughout the whole film. And you can tell it's a setup where she'll be main. So even it's flaws like that, not enough Zendaya are, are done for a reason. I think what struck me the most, because, you know, these are all, these are things I, I expected through Dune. I didn't know Stellan Skarsgård was in it and he was a phenomenal gluttonous, stupid, greedy villain. He was great. He really was. 
um, he's the good kind of villain for the first because you know he's not going to beat anybody, but he's a fun, evil dude. Um, and a lot of surprisingly great people too. Like, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because of the MCU, but Batista was phenomenal and not just his, uh, his movements. There's some good dialogue there. Uh, Josh Brolin as well. Um, yeah, I, I highly recommend because my view maybe is a bit biased. I saw it in not AVX IMAX. So 28% more than others of the whole, you know, screen. Um, and it's stunning. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would recommend it, you know, if you have a big TV, watch it, but it's still in theaters. Try to see it in AVX or if you can, IMAX. Um, I can see why people didn't love it. It is kind of just half of the first book, I think, but mm-hmm. it's still a solid film. It's fun just by itself, but a great segue into the following films. So, yeah, Dune, my number one. And we now know that there will be a sequel, so uh, you don't have to worry about watching dune and not uh knowing where the story goes yeah so my number one slightly different from dune um it is called beans it is a canadian film from tracy deer and it is a dramatic dramatized true life story uh of her experience being uh a young teen during the oka crisis um for people who don't know it was a, a dispute over basically a land dispute which uh has happened a lot in in our modern uh news um in recent years uh they wanted to build a golf course on what was literally an old indigenous uh graveyard and uh the indigenous people in the area fought back roads were blockaded uh violence was in the air it was a 70 something day standoff but in the midst of all this there were young people who were trying to struggle to understand the situation there are harrowing moments like a scene where the women and children are evacuated from the reserve and they have to go through this gauntlet of like angry white people who are throwing rocks at their cars um there's moments of like true childhood innocence like they're when um the main character beans is riding down the street uh with her sister on their bikes or riding down this road and it's just them because the roads are blockaded so there's no traffic and there's this wonderful sense of freedom uh and innocence uh you know there's a lot of stuff about trauma and processing trauma and the cycle of trauma and none of it is heavy-handed it is all beautifully done um, it is almost a kid's movie. I mean, some of the violence implied is kind of scary. There are swears in it as well, but I think it's something that older kids could like see and appreciate. And so this was just like really generally a great time um, for indigenous cinema. Uh, there have been a lot of great stories in, in recent years coming from these communities, both documentary and uh and uh, dramatic narrative like uh, at Guelph Film Festival this year, Gimani Bitson, uh, which is about the struggle of um, the Blackfoot Reserve in Alberta with the opioid crisis there. It's just this beautifully harrowing movie about a community trying to save itself. So uh, it feels good to sort of cap off the year with, uh, with a classic uh, story about uh, childhood through this uniquely Canadian situation. Well, that brings us to, unfortunately, the end of the show and the end of 2021. 
So uh, I'll thank everybody for uh, their lists and for, for taking part in the show this year. And um, I'll on behalf of everyone, I'll say to the audience, happy new year. And thanks for listening and thanks for sticking with us. And uh, we will, we will meet again in 2022. Don't worry. We are not going anywhere. So that is it for the show. We hope you liked it. If you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. Download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. When you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear in end credits. Just open up Spotify and search for end credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. Let's go around the Zoom room, starting with Tim. Tim, where can people find you on the internet? Internet, uh, Flash in the Deadpan on social media. And Happy New Year to everybody. Hope everybody has a great New Year. And Candice, you're next. Yep, you can find me at Sin48 on everything. I've been pushing my letterbox lately, so you can see all the other movies I watched this year, which are almost primarily all Hallmark. And don't believe the stars I give them, because that's the Hallmark level of stars not the real movie level of stars writing on a curve for hallmark uh peter where can people find you on the so on uh youtube and twitter uh mr tarak so yeah check that out y'all and i will be back here tomorrow at 5 p.m for news and politics on open sources guelph with uh my co-host there scotty hertz in the meantime you can find me personally at adam a donaldson on twitter and instagram and check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. We will return for more end credits in the new year, still Wednesday at 3 p.m., and we will see you in 2022.